Got a question for you to start things off today. Uh, not going to be a question that I want answers from from the floor, because uh, I don't want to set you up for anything, <laughs> as you'll see. But I would like to think about it. Um, there's a question you might have thought of before. Um, if you could meet God, what would you say to him? If you could meet God, what would you say to him? Okay, imagine the scenario involves <laughs> you are meeting God, obviously. And uh, what was the things you'd like to say? And I've... Um, what are you thinking of that? I've heard lots of answers to that question before. Some people have asked that question to myself in conversation. Some people have heard them give answers in other settings. And some people would be more like, um, I guess, a kind of shopping list sort of mentality of like, whoa, I'd be like winning the lottery. I could ask lots of things. Uh, but most people would be a kind of maybe more reflective. Some, some maybe, well, I'd say, good job for nature, God, or something like that. Sunsets, pretty good score. Rolling hills, good, good work. Um, some, some might be... Uh, in more reflective, say, I'd, I'd ask him if I could speak to my gran or uh, my brother or someone who's passed away. Others, a very common answer from those who maybe aren't too sure that there's a God to meet, uh, some would say, well, I'd give him a piece of my mind I'd, for this, that happened, this bad thing that happened to me or this thing that's happened in the world. He'd, I'd ask him to explain himself. And maybe one of those answers uh, or in the realm of those answers you might have in mind uh, today. Well, whatever your answer would be, it's interesting to think that if we'd asked the same question to any Jewish person living in ancient times, they would have very likely given a very different kind of answer um, or even tone of answer any that we'd probably be thinking of. Because if I asked a Jewish person, let's say 1000 BC, if you could meet God, what would, they, what would you say? They would answer something like this. They, they wouldn't worry so much about the saying bit. They'd be more on the meet God. They'd be, meet God? What on earth are you on about? Why would I want to meet God? That would be suicide. That would probably be the kind of answer they'd give. And I'm going to explain a little bit more today why there might be such an adverse reaction to such a question like that. But as we're going to see, it would be fair to say that the Jews of the Old Testament saw God very differently to how a modern British person might do. And that would be the case if you're here today, never having gone to church in your life, or whether you've been a Christian for, for many years, probably. Okay? I guess the idea, when you think of meeting God, I don't know what the, what the scenario was you might have envisaged, what, what kind of meeting was it like. Some see God as meeting God like a, a child playing with their dad. That's maybe this kind of scenario. Others, um, we, we may be thinking, not dissimilar to me, Miller's chat a minute ago, actually, um, like a barroom chat with the most interesting and informative being there can ever be. They, you might think of it like that. Others would see a little bit like the ultimate Santa's grotto sort of, sort of experience. That's what, what meeting God would be like. And in a sense, I, we're going to be looking at a passage today that could be seen as justifying those kind of images, I guess, to a degree. And just so you're aware, I'm going to flag this up a number of times as we go along, because you need to hear it. At the end, when we get to the end of this talk, you're, we're going to end somewhere not maybe a million miles from some of those, although on their own, I think they can be taken out of context, okay? Now, that's where we're going to end today. You'll see in a minute what I mean by that, because from the passage you're looking at. But what my point will be today, and what I really want to spend most of the time today on, is trying to get inside the mind of the writer to the Hebrews, and inside the mind of the, actually the whole culture that produced the kind of writings we're looking at today. Because if we don't do that, we could feel the accessibility of God that we'll see in this passage, but we'll completely miss the point of why it's here and why it's so important, because we'll come to God with a sense of casualness, complacency, and entitlement. And I'd like us to be in a place where we come to God very boldly, but not with those uh, negative kind of uh, ways of approaching God, okay? So with that all said, let's turn to, if you've got a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, 
uh, verses, short little passage today, verses 14 to 16, and the words will come out. They have already. Good work. Good work, Alec. Okay. This is what the writer of the Hebrews says. We're going through the book of Hebrews as a church uh, at the moment. This is where we've made it to so far. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Now, I don't know if you ever do this. Uh, maybe it's just a preacher thing to do. When I'm listening to a talk, I often hear the, hear the pastor. I think, ooh, what is it going to be? on If I was preaching today, what would I preach on? I wanted to ask you the question. If you looked at those couple of verses, not too much there, which bits do your mind hone in on? Because okay, there's some obvious bits here that you could say, well, this would be really, really motivational. The, surely the point here, verse 16, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Anyone, th- th- does that stick out to anyone? Does anyone like, yeah, that's a good verse. We love that verse. Um, this thing about the end, we will find grace to help us when we need it most. I mean, come on, this is, this is great stuff. Um, and we will, I'm going to say it a number of times, we will get round to it. Okay, honestly, we will do, because those things are very important in this passage. But I want to spend most of our time just on this, this wor- these words uh, that come from verse 14 and 15, this idea, high priest. It's the key idea here, and I'd like to work out what it is and what's going on and why it's so important. Because the issue is here, it's not just that... Jesus as our high priest is mentioned in Hebrews 4. This is going to be mentioned again and again. Jonathan's going to take off from where I'm at today next time with his talk on a guy with the best name in the Bible, Melchizedek, which slips through in, in a baby names, but it's a great name, you know. Melchizedek rolls off the tongue. I love it. Anyway, Jonathan will have that next time. Um, but th- this image of the high priest is almost like one of the most important image in the whole of Hebrews. And I wonder what, so why? Well, why is that? It seems, very, it seems very technical to some of us who understand it. It seems completely foreign to those who don't understand it. And it's come up already in chapters 2 and 3. And Rich Pitt gave us a really helpful image to help us understanding this image. Because I'm going to spend just the first main bulk of what we're doing. What is a high priest and why is it important? Okay, that's really where we're going to be. Okay, and what's a high priest? Rich Pitt gave us this image. He said a high priest was a go-between between us and God. Brilliant image, that really helps us. Somebody who stands in the middle of two other parties, people and God, that is a priest, okay? Forget all the clothes and the rituals for the moment. That's essentially what a priest does and who a priest is, okay? But the obvious question, to take that further, must be, why do we need someone to stand in between us and God? Why do we need a go-between like that? Okay? Now, I think it's quite easy to understand why we might need someone to stand between us and God in the sense of representing God to us. I think we can all get that. That's very simple. In the same way as if I was talking to anyone here who was only spoke German, for example, I would need a go-between to represent them to me. They would be called a what? A translator, yeah, a translator. They translate the idea. That's kind of standing in between, a go between in that way. And I think we'd all agree some of what God says might be slightly complicated. For example, the book of Hebrews, you might need someone to stand in the middle to kind of help you to understand, represent God to you. We can understand that. But why would God need uh, someone to represent us to Him? That's hard to, to understand. But actually, in the Old Testament, this is the whole emphasis in the priest's role. It's representing us to God, allowing us to come before God. And and actually, the the reason this is so important was completely because of how the ancient Jewish people viewed God. Now, I guess 
we'd have all sorts of words to describe God, wouldn't we? If I said, what's God like? First thing that comes to mind uh, might say things like loving or faithful or kind or just or if we'd like been around for a while, we might have used words with lots of syllables like religious words, I don't know, sovereign or something like that, you know. But for them, for the Old Testament Jews, the answer, there would be an answer to this question. And the answer would be this. How do you describe God? God is holy. That would be the, the key word for them. That would be the main thing. All the other stuff, yes, agreed with, but holy uh, was the main word. Now, what does holy mean? If you're, again, if you're a Christian of any length of time, it's a word that you'll know, a word you'll have sung and said, but it often, it's a very hard word to translate and understand. And essentially, the simplest way, it means special. And by special, I mean kind of completely unique, different from anything else, holy, set apart, removed, Different from anything else, definitely different from us. Again, think of this from how we talk about God. And this would be, I think, the case whether you'd be a Christian or not, probably, except if you're from certain religious traditions. We'd often speak of God as our friend. And if we get on to later, we're allowed to do that. Jesus told us to do that. It's an amazing thing. But therefore, we'd use lots of peer language to speak of God, like he's a friend or a very close relative, okay? That's not really how the Old Testament Jews spoke of God. It wasn't just that they hadn't thought of, oh, I could talk of God like this. No, no, the the way they spoke of God was showing that they felt there was a, a considerable gulf between us and God. We could say an incongruity, okay, if you get, get that word. It means we don't fit together, okay? We don't naturally occupy the same sort of space. So why don't people and God fit together according to the ancient Jewish way of thinking? Well, I think there's two ways to do this. And the the first way is something we don't think about much, but it's obvious. Simply, God is God and we are people. And through who we are, there is a little bit of a mismatch. I don't know if you noticed that uh, much, okay? So God, for example, we could pick a few things. uh, Eternal, all-powerful, omnipresent, everywhere at once. uh, Invisible, okay? Anyone omnipresent here this morning? Oh, there you are, yeah. Anyone invisible? I don't see any hands. Okay, fair enough. Okay, there's a difference. They don't get much better than that today, sorry. Uh, um, uh, There's obvious difference between who we are just by nature of who we are. And actually thinkers, if anyone studied philosophy, thinkers for thousands of years have, have pondered how could a God who exists outside of time interact with people who see things as a sequence and they... That's complicated. I don't know if you've ever thought that before. That is a really difficult question to answer. But just as the nature of who we are and who God is, there's a difference, massive gulf. But actually, um, God was especially seen removed from us uh, by the Jews of the Old Testament by nature of actually his activity, his moral perfection. Alongside the word holiness, words like righteousness, always doing what's right and being what's right, goodness. And those words are a particular problem for us because we're not like that. And that's not by nature of us being people, like having two hands and existing inside of a sequence of events or something like that. No, it's because of decisions we've made. It's because of choices we've made. We've made choices that haven't been good, holy, righteous, morally perfect. And the Bible says it's made us, what the Bible says, sinners. And it's corrupted us and it's corrupted everything we've come in contact with. And so there's this gulf between human beings and God. Okay, And because of this gulf, when uh, you see in the Old Testament they talk of God or their view of God, there are these incredible things that they, that they just assume. That Again, if you read much of the Bible, you'd be aware of these, but it's good to dwell on these because they're so different to how we do things. So they weren't allowed to make images of God. 
That wasn't just some minor fine print. That was the second commandment. Don't ever make an image of God because that would be disrespectful. He's holy. You don't want to make him out of clay or stone. You'll, you'll do a disservice to him. Well, this one. Again, we probably some of us know this, but it's good to dwell on. They couldn't say the name of God. Well, they could if they wanted to, but if they did, large rocks would be thrown at their head until they died. That would what happened. You've got at least one case of that in the Old Testament. You'd be stoned to death. You weren't even able to write the name of God. Here's a fun fact. For a, if you're ever in a particularly religious pub quiz, this will help you. Okay? Okay. Question. I want to answer this. In the Old Testament, there are two names of God that, that like, people use pretty interchangeably. Okay? What are the two main names of God in the Old Testament? Or, or, well, what is one of the names of God in the Old Testament? What did they call God? Yahweh. Yahweh. Okay, good. Yahweh. There's another one. I heard it. Jehovah. Okay? Yahweh and Jehovah. Do they just like, they have two gods? Does anyone know why? Why do we have those two names? It's quite a general question. Very, very good, Jody. Round of applause. That is the correct answer. 10 points for Team Jody. Um, you might not have heard that, though, so I'll repeat it again and pretend it came from me. Okay. Um, Vowels, they removed all the vowels, they just wrote the consonants. The consonants would be Y, which could be said as J in the Hebrew alphabet, H, W, which could be said as V, and H, okay? Y, H, W, H. All we've got is the consonants, because they such a sense of reverence. We can't write God's name, but we have to reference it, so we'll just put the consonants. Could be Yahweh, could be Jehovah, depends how you, you read that. But can you see, it's not, that's a fun, fun fact for today, but can you see, imagine, get into the mind of someone who say, I can't even write down the name of God. I'm going to go to those sort of lengths uh, with the name of God. And this wasn't just kind of to do with saying or writing. It was completely understood that if you ever saw God, you would die. That was it. back, everyone knew this in ancient Israel. And this is why the ancient Jews, I think, would have reacted so strongly to the question asked at the beginning. If, if you could meet God, what would you ask him? What? No, I don't want to meet God. It would incinerate me and leave me as a pair of boots with smoke coming out of them. That's not how I want it to go, thank you. When, when God does come close to individuals in the Old Testament, while there are many good things that happen, there are always negative reactions as well. Usually, well, almost on every occasion, the person falls flat on their face. In some occasions, it says, as if dead. Okay, that's the first response. Okay, it's not like a big smile grows in their face. Oh God, I've just been looking forward to seeing you. It's like, ah, face on the floor. Isaiah, interestingly, the prophet Isaiah, he could have answered our question from experience. Isaiah, if you could meet God, what would you say? Oh, well, I'll tell you what I did say when I met God. You know what he said? Woe to me, I'm undone. That's what we see in Isaiah 6. That's what he said when he met God. Daniel, after a particular vision of God, was so exhausted, he was confined to his bed ill for days. Again, we don't often think of that when we're, we're singing songs like, to be in your presence, to sit at your feet, so I can be ill for days. Or, I'm running to your arms, Lord. We'll come back to that song in a minute. These are good songs, and we should sing them. But, but they would have had a very different view of running into the arms of God. <laughs> those are arms you're not getting out of, again. Just so you know, those things I just said, they would be the best things that could happen. On one occasion, Nadab and Abihu, who were two priests in Exodus, decided to freestyle slightly on how they did their priestly duties and make up a few different extra rituals. Any ideas what happened to them? Died. They died on the spot. Okay? Uh, Uzzah, an interesting case. Uzzah uh, was guarding the, the Ark of the Covenant, okay? which some of you know from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but um, others from the Bible, which is not exactly the same. 
Um, <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant was seen as the place where God dwelt. It was symbolic of that place, not just symbolic. They felt God's presence was there in a way that no other place on earth had the presence of God. Uzzah presumptuously, simply, he didn't spit on it. He didn't say anything bad about it. He didn't do anything like that. He didn't look into it and get his face melted or anything like that. He just touched it, okay? Actually, rightly, to stop it from falling off a cart. What happened to him? Died. Now, this wasn't just the case, actually, with individuals. It's a case for the whole of God's community, too. I, th- I think we see this most in the case where the, the Ten Commandments are given. So, uh, Ten Commandments, part of the Jewish law, 621 other commandments given to Moses as well, or on top of one mountain, Mount Sinai, okay? And in the story, the whole of Israel, the whole people of Israel are gathered around the foot of this mountain, and it is as if God himself is coming down onto the mountain, okay? There's fire, there's thunder, there's smoke, okay? There's lightning, and the idea is God is on this mountain, okay? And uh, so the presence of God is there. It's wow, to be in your presence, so what do people say? So they go, I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. They leg it towards God. No, they don't. This is what it says. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 18. I think I've got this here. I have. Uh, when the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to, directly to us or we will die. Wow. What was going on? They understood a colossal mismatch between us and God. They understood the fact that we don't belong together. God and human beings are not like two peas in a pod. We're not pals. We're not chums or amigos. We're, well, we're just us, I suppose. We've got some good things. We've got some bad things. He is holy, holy, holy. And they understood that it's almost completely inexplicable that that God could have anything to do with us at all, let alone come close to us. But here's the strange thing. In all these stories I'm talking about, he had come close to people. This God who was so holy and removed and different and foreign had himself initiated a close relationship with the Jewish people. This is the the whole mystery of the Old Testament. Exodus 6, 7, God says to Moses, he says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. The the holy God of heaven, you couldn't even say his name or even write it or even see him. He was initiating relationships with human beings. Imagine that, a relationship with someone you couldn't see, couldn't say their name or even write their name. Wow, how does that even work? Well, how it worked, and we're now finally onto the beat that where are we going here? Back to something we mentioned at the beginning, was through priests. Priests were absolutely vital in the Old Testament system to make this strange mismatch possible. Let's think back to that Mount Sinai example. Where we've got a more obvious example of priests. This is an example of Moses being a priest. Okay? You've got God here. You've got the people here. And uh, Moses will be a priest representing God to people soon. He goes to the mountain. He gets the commandments. He brings them down. He's translating what God says to the people. They go between in that way. But, but more in that story, he's the go-between representing the people to God. Moses goes up the mountain. Moses takes his life into his own hands. Interestingly, later... 40 days later, the people completely abandon God and make a golden calf. Why? Because they assume he's died. Because they think, well, he's gone to see God. Well, he's dead, isn't he? It hasn't worked out. We, we assumed that was a possibility. And Moses is taking his whole life into his hands for a people who knew that they couldn't go to God. He's standing in between. As I said, there is a more clear example 
And the clearest example of the priestly duty was in the priest role in the whole sacrifice system in the Old, in the old Testament. I've got a picture, uh, I think, of something to do with sacrifices, another photo from the exact time, as, you, as I'm sure you're aware, exactly what happened, but it might be in the right, right sort of realm. Um, in the sacrifice system in the Old Testament, the priest would offer uh, to God the people's sacrifices. Okay, and again, notice, you might say, why didn't the people bring their offerings to God themselves? Okay, uh, again, if they tried doing that, uh, you'll never guess what happened to them in the Old Testament. They died. Yes, again, they died. They weren't allowed. That was very bad. You couldn't bring your offerings yourself. You had to do it through the priest, okay? And these, um, these sacrifices, they could be grain or they, they could be fruit, but most importantly, uh, they were animals. And the most important animal sacrifices were brought on a certain day of the year, uh, the Day of Atonement, uh, remembered now as Yom, Yom Kippur in the Jewish calendar. Okay? Now, on the Day of Atonement, originally, the priest would sacrifice a goat and a bull, and then th- they would take the blood from those animals, and they'd take it into the holiest place, in, uh, whether that's the tabernacle or the temple, which would be the holy uh, place, the place where God was seen to dwell uh, in Israel. They'd take the blood there, and they'd sprinkle it on the altar. Okay, and the idea is they sprinkle that blood on the place where God was. Okay, it would act as an atonement for the priest's own sin and also for the sin of all the people. Okay, by atonement, what do I, what do I mean? Well, it, in other words, what, what we could say is the sacrifice was seen as some way of, of covering over people's sins or enabling God to still relate to Israel, even to live with them, to dwell with them, despite the bad things that they'd done. Okay. Guys, just so you know, I'm very impressed. You're doing really well because I know this is super old school <laughs> today, but we're almost out of it, okay? I have five minutes, I guarantee. Are you okay? Still with me? Good, okay, fair enough. Now, some of you may be wilting at this point slightly, not just for fatigue from old stuff, okay, but more like animal sacrifice, that's totally foreign, but possibly even slightly barbaric as well, okay? And it seems hard to understand why you do that, but I, I hope... When you see how they viewed God, I hope you see how that kind of thing does make sense. God was so different. He was so much better. He was so holy that we needed someone to stand in between us and him. And we needed these rituals like these to show that at least we recognized we had done things that removed ourselves from our creator. At least we were shown that we understand this is a weird arrangement here. We're doing something to show that we don't see how we fit. How can we be your people, God? You'll be very encouraged and pleased to hear that I am in no way uh, bringing you the news from Church Central HQ that we are bringing back any of these practices. <laughs> Phew, okay. It's not, we're, not, we're not looking to bring back any of the purification rituals from the Old Testament. And uh, the verse we started with, and which we are going to return to, honest, um, makes this very clear. As we'll look at very soon, we don't need to run away from the throne of judgment anymore. No, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. But while it's incredibly important to reflect on what's changed in how we relate to God nowadays, I think it's equally important to reflect on what hasn't changed. Because a lot hasn't changed. I mean, talking about the Jewish way of looking at God like it's a completely different thing in the Old Testament. Actually, it's not. Detail's different. Big picture, the same. Why? Because God is still holy. He's still the God that if you were to see him Without a mediator, you would die instantly. He's still awesome. He's still to be feared. The writer of the Hebrews can talk about God's grace and his love and his accessibility, as he does in in Hebrews 14. 
But at the same time, he's very clear on how he views God. He, he, he describes God in a certain way. He says, write to the Hebrews, how do you see God? Is he a good shepherd? Is he like a father? Yes, he is both of those things, just so you know. But the word that come to mind for the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 12, verse 6, oh, sorry, Hebrews 12, 29, he's a devouring fire. That's how he saw God. He's a devouring fire. This guy has a picture of God's arms as well that we sing about. Uh, just, uh, I've mentioned that song a few times. If you don't know, I'm running to your arms. He has an idea of God's arms. In fact, he's more specific. He talks about God's hands. Okay? He says this, uh, Hebrews 10, 31. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The God of the New Testament and the God that we worship as Christians is still the same God as the Old Testament. The God you couldn't look at on your own and live, whose name is still to be hugely respected and revered. He's still holy. And therefore, we still need a high priest to stand in between us and him. And we have that high priest. His name is Jesus. The amazing thing that the writer to the Hebrews explains in this book is not that just Jesus is one in a long line of high priests. Oh, he's the new guy, and he's going to be around for a bit longer than the others. Or even that he's the best ever high priest. No, no, Jesus is actually the one the whole system pointed towards. Because you see, if you think about it, the whole animal sacrifice thing, it does have a few problems with it as regards working and stuff, okay? <laughs> you get, I've done some things wrong, so what I do is I find some senseless creature here, I just stick it in the mix, there you go, priest, have that, kill that animal for me, would you? And that will fix my problem, he can be punished in my place. The animal's got no choice in it, and uh, whatever you think of uh, sheep and goats and things, I think it would be fair to say for most of us, our self-esteem levels would be high enough to say they're not quite as valuable as me as well. I, I hope that's the case. If not, we'd like to pray with you uh, later. You're more important than a sheep or a goat, okay? It, it seems like a mismatch. It seems like a, almost a scam, this whole exchange. And you might think that sounds incredibly sacrilegious. It says this in the Bible. Johnny, how could you speak like this? Well, the writer of the Hebrews speaks like this. Hebrews 10.4. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, okay? Whoa! So what on earth? Why waste all those good animals? Okay, why pile them up and kill them for many years? Well, the whole sacrifice system was pointing forwards to a sacrifice that could be effective, to a sacrifice that could deal with our sin from a willing volunteer, no sheep or bulls or goats are very willing, and whose life was more than a fair match for ours and who willingly put him forward, self forward as our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. I'd put it just another way, slightly differently. The priests of the Old Testament couldn't really stand effectively between weak, sinful humans and the consuming fire of the living God. But what they did pointed towards one who really, really could, because he was God and man and still is, the great high priest Jesus. And it's only because of him that any of us can come anywhere near God without being destroyed. This again, this, is, this background, I hope, will help us see the bigger picture of the book of Hebrews, and particularly the, the harsh warnings in this book. The book of Hebrews, you might have seen some of these already and think, why are there such harsh warnings to Christians in the book of Hebrews? If you thought that at all, uh, bad news, they, they get harsher and stronger as the book goes on. We haven't even met the, the big ones yet. They just keep going. You think, well, why? Why are these harsh warnings to Christians? Why does he warn Christians again and again and again with these incredibly strong terms about turning away from Jesus? Well, the point is very simple. If you turn away from Jesus, when you meet God at the end of the day, what you're doing is touching the third rail without your rubber boots on. 
you're wandering into a nuclear reactor without your radiation suit. Without Jesus, you have no hope of approaching God and living to tell the tale. And a moment, we genuinely are going to get to some pretty startling permissions regarding how we can relate to God. But we're not going to appreciate those things. And I think more importantly, we won't appreciate the one who won us those things unless we understand this context. We can only approach God with confidence because of Jesus. We can only expect God's help because of Jesus. Nobody else could have done it. Nobody else would have done it. If, you, if you're not a Christian here, I'd just like to address you for a moment and talk to you more directly. It could, could be relevant for others as well. Um, but it would, I think this next bit would definitely will be relevant for others. I know this all sounds really old school, like really old school. All this kind of God of thunder and fire who needs priests and sacrifices and those things. I think probably most of us would be like, yeah, we're there. I said that a minute ago. But just say this, if you think, if, if that's off-putting to you, can I, let's just ask the question, like, would we want God any other way? Surely, if there's a God who's real, we wouldn't want him to be the kind of God we could just stroll up to and give him a high five, would we? A God who we would be so comfortable around that essentially he'd be just like us. A God that was just like us could not create a universe. A God who was not just like us could not know the thoughts of every being that's ever existed. I think most importantly, a God who was just like us, who we were totally at ease with, would not be able to judge the world. Maybe it's exactly that that you've got a problem with, this whole idea of a God of judgment that seems so archaic and unhelpful and seems to run through what I've been talking about. But again, I'd ask the question, surely God has to be a God of judgment. Surely we'd want God to be a God of judgment. You might think, oh, no, definitely wouldn't want him, Johnny. You're wrong on that, that account. But let's, pause it. let's think about this for a second. If there's nobody to judge us, how would things ever improve? I think we can all imagine a world that is better than this one. Give you a go. Imagine a world better than this one. Yeah, it didn't, didn't take long, did it? Okay. <laughs> Here's a harder job. Imagine a world that's better than this one with humans like us still living on it. That's very difficult to do. We need somebody who is better than us to judge us in two ways. Firstly, in telling us some of your actions are right and some are wrong. That's judgment, okay? Those things are right, those things are wrong. We need that kind of judgment. And we also need a kind of judgment of someone who will take those things seriously enough to do something about it. We desperately need a God of judgment to exist or there's going to be no justice in the world and no hope for a better future. But of course the problem is, and it's a problem that I think deep down most of us understand, is if there was a God like that, we would be just as much in trouble as those who've done the things that we think are particularly bad. Because if the gulf between us and God is the same as the gulf between I don't know, Harold Shipman or a, 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 whoever else you'd put over there and God, we're all in pretty much the same boat. The wonder of the Bible and the wonder of Christianity and the wonder of what Jesus taught is that such a God exists. He really does exist. He's a God who's morally perfect, who judges in righteousness, yet we still can relate to him. I know for some of you, you're like, yes, I know this. This is so basic, but this should never be basic for us. This is astonishing. This is mind-blowing. This is why Jesus was killed by the devoutest Jews, because what he was saying, it just didn't fit in any of their boxes. 
please, guys, never get over-familiar with the wonder of our relationship with God, made possible solely through our great high priest, Jesus. If he was to step out for even a minute, we wouldn't want to run into those arms. But he doesn't, and he won't, because he sprinkled his blood. His blood was shed and then it was sprinkled on the altar and is sprinkled in the holiest of holies in heaven itself forever before the Father. So what? All this? What does it all mean? It's all uh, <laughs> maybe interesting or not interesting depending where you stand on it. But how does it affect our lives? Well, it's very, very quick. It's, I've done the work now and we, you've done the work. Well done. Good job. No, uh, no sleeping or anything. It's good, good work. Um, three things that we can get from all this, and I think they're really important to us. And with all that known, we can grab hold of these simple things, I think, very powerfully. Firstly, this. You were waiting for this. I said it about half an hour ago. We come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. We want to repeat it. So I said, we come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Yes, that song is not being scratched. We run into his arms. Do we still have a sense of awe as we run? Yes. Should we still have a deep sense of the fear of God? Yes, definitely, certainly. We shouldn't even be able to tiptoe in. But we come in boldly. Please, can I be clear? Boldly doesn't mean casually. Boldly doesn't mean complacently. But we come in boldly. Our boldness comes from two things. We remember who God is, firstly. We remember who God is. The privilege of boldly coming to the throne of God is because God is still the God of the Old Testament. He is still holy, he's still majestic, and he's still powerful. If he wasn't, it wouldn't matter if we could come to him or not. We'd be like, well, why bother coming to that God? He's not worth anything. But he's still that God. God hasn't had to strip off a few of his powers to make this whole arrangement possible. No, he's still the God who made everything, who does everything right, but incredibly we can talk to him, we can hear from him, we can receive from him. Just run to him. Second bit boldness comes from, and the main thing from this passage is we remember how we got here. We remember why we got in, because that's where our boldness comes from. We got in because of Jesus. If we ever drop our gaze from Jesus and just assume this is a natural setup, we don't have boldness because deep down, we understand, I think, whatever we might remonstrate, that there's a gulf. We shouldn't be here. If we're looking at ourselves, yeah, I can get in. You think, no, no, that can't be right. But we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because we know he gives us permission to come into the presence of God. As long as we're holding on to Jesus and following him as the Lord of our lives, we have access to all areas in the throne room of heaven. We have God's full attention. I'd encourage you, boldly take advantage of it. Don't be casual, don't be complacent, but be bold and do it over and over again. You never run out of minutes in the throne room of God. First thing. Second thing, we expect God's help. As it said in the passage we read at the beginning, there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. We're going to come to this much more in Hebrews. I had to flag this up today. God is not making his decisions about us uh, without having first-hand experience of our situation. It's an amazing thing. I wonder if you ever, uh, I wonder if you know this phrase, the, the phrase, um, first world problems. Have people heard that phrase? Okay, it's like kind of, uh, you see somebody say, how are you? And oh, everything's going wrong. Cheers, what's wrong? My Netflix subscription's crashed. Oh, I don't know if I can go on. Okay, that would be a first world problem, okay? We're familiar with Netflix. It's a kind of streaming service, yeah? 
I think we are. That's be with, yes, definitely, a couple of us are. Good, okay. But first of all, problems are problems that might seem massive to us, but in the context of global misery, they're not, come on, pull yourself together. And there would be something to be said of getting some perspective on these things. However, I think for some of us, when we go to God, we think God's response to us all the time is just first world problems. Because God sees everything. He sees the, 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 the earthquake over here, and he sees the, the, the orphans over here, and he sees the disaster over here, and you come going, God, I need help here. Oh, he's he's going to just say, get perspective. First world problems, sort yourself out. And we, we don't come to him expecting help. We don't think we should even get help. Okay, whenever you think like that, change the picture in your head. Think of your high priest who's there, Jesus. Jesus went through all of this stuff himself. Jesus knew the hurt and pain of being betrayed by his friends. He knew what it was like to get hungry and to get sick and to get tired and for those things to matter, okay? And that's our high priest. He's right there. He's the one in the presence of God forever who is interceding for us. It's an amazing thing. And it's amazing that it's very important that we come to him and we know this stuff and then we can think, well, we should expect his help for us. God understands what we've been through. In a very real sense, God has been through something at least as painful. God is not out of touch with your reality, and he doesn't minimize your trouble, okay? Maybe on occasion he might need to give us some perspective, but even then he does it with mercy and grace because he's been there. In your time of need, God's help is here for you because Jesus is in heaven right now as your great high priest. And thirdly and finally, very, very short, but I don't think I can finish anywhere else than this. How do we, what do we do? We thank Jesus said it a number of times, I hope, and I just want to underline it as we close. And I hope as we sing, this can run through everything we do. Because every time we pray, we should, in the back of our minds, be thanking Jesus that we can pray. And every time we sing a song to God and think, God's here with us, he's, he's hearing me, we're thanking Jesus that he's made that possible. And every time we feel the, the, the wonderful, sweet effects of God's activity in our life, we're thanking Jesus, saying, this shouldn't be how it is but you did this for me. Only possible because of Jesus' unswerving submission to the will of his Father on the cross. We thank him. The kind of relationship we have with God is not natural. We don't deserve it. It's all because of Jesus, our great high priest. And I'd encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, um, to come to him because there's no one else who can plug the gap between you and God and bring you into a relationship with him. If you met God, what would you say? Well, you know what, I hope the first thing I'd say is if I'm there and I see him, which I believe that that will happen one day, and I realize I'm not just a smoking pair of boots and I can actually open my mouth and he's looking at me with something of love and acceptance, what do I say? I hope my first words would be, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Can we pray?